Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much. Crystal and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program for caregivers coping with a loved one's prostate cancer. Now, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, as well as prostate-specific um, cancer organizations. And I just want to call out to the Prostate Cancer Foundation, the Prostate Net, us to Prostate Cancer Education Support, and Zero, the End of Prostate Cancer, which are wonderful resources for everybody on the call today. Um, and today's program um, really is... Um, it reaches out to people from all over the United States and internationally, so we have on the call today over 378 participants who come from all over the United States, and we have international participants from Canada, Taiwan, and United Kingdom, so it's a bit of a global call as well. Today's program is supported by an educational grant from Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and I really want to thank them for their support. So we have the best speakers on the program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speakers. And our first speaker is Dr. Aaron Kent. Dr. Kent is Scientific Advisor for the Outcomes Research Branch, Healthcare Delivery Research Program, Division of Cancer Control and Population Sciences, National Cancer Institute. Um, and Dr. Kent will be addressing definition of a caregiver, what research tells us about caregivers, deciding to become a caregiver, and the important role of the caregiver with the healthcare team. It's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kent. Thank you so much, Carolyn. And I'm honored to be invited by Cancer Care um, to be speaking with you today on this important topic of caregivers coping with a loved one's prostate cancer. Um, before I begin, I first want to indicate that I am a researcher and an advisor, as Carolyn mentioned, for the National Cancer Institute. Most of my work is focused on cancer patient outcomes, including quality of life, the impact that cancer has had on families, and cancer caregiving. I'm not, however, a clinician, and so I do not have the experience of providing direct medical or psychosocial care. My role today instead is to tell you about what research tells us about being an informal or family caregiver for someone with prostate cancer. And to that end, um, a cancer patient survey in 2015 led by Cancer Care found that the impact that cancer can have on family was the number one concern of cancer patients, indicating how critically important it is that we pay attention to our cancer patients' families in addition to the patients themselves. So what do I mean by a caregiver? Well, what I mean here is, is that caregivers of men with prostate cancer might be spouses, partners, children. They also might include relatives, friends, neighbors, or coworkers. Caregivers are people who help their care recipients meet their day-to-day -day needs, what we often refer to as activities of daily living. And that can include basic tasks like feeding, dressing, bathing, and moving around, and can also include what we call instrumental tasks like shopping, paying bills, and socializing. Tasks that caregivers help with can include what we call medical or nursing tasks like administering medication, changing bandages, and helping with things like infusion ports and catheters in the case of cancer care. Caregivers also might help accompany their loved ones to medical appointments, communicating and coordinating with healthcare providers, and sometimes advocating for services. It is difficult to estimate just how many people are serving in this role at a given time here in the U.S., especially for patients specifically with prostate cancer or for that for that matter, any specific cancer, and that is partly because many caregivers are helping care for loved ones with multiple health problems um, or, or just chronic conditions. The National Alliance for Caregiving is an organization um, that conducts a survey of caregivers nationwide once about every five years, and their most recent estimate from a report published in 2015 is that approximately 43.5 million adults are currently serving as a caregiver for a loved one with a serious health problem. 
of those, uh, about 2.8 million um, reported serving as a caregiver for someone with cancer. But I'll note that this is probably an underestimate of the total burden, um, given that some people might care for someone with cancer and other health problems, or, or what we might call someone who has multiple serious health problems. It is safe to say that there are thousands of people right now who fit the role of caregiving for a loved one with prostate cancer, and certainly thousands more to come. Rosalind Carter, the former First Lady and caregiving champion, has been quoted as saying there are only four kinds of people in the world, those who have been caregivers, those who are currently caregivers, those who will be caregivers, and those who will need a caregiver. So the problem is, is, is ubiquitous. We know that there are many challenging aspects of being a caregiver, particularly for those who are caregiving a um, high number of hours per week, helping out um, or helping out with several activities of daily living, as I mentioned before. The recent National Alliance for Caregiving study found that caregivers on average spend over 32 hours per week providing care, which was more than those who reported caring for other, um, for other health problems that their loved one had. Cancer caregiving tends to be more intense and episodic than caregiving for those with other health conditions. So what, what else does the research tell us about caregiving? Well, we know that caregiving for adults of any age with cancer is most often conducted by partners or spouses, significant others, um, who often face competing demands of career and child rearing. Differences in caregivers' well-being has been shown across the caregiver care recipient relationship with um, individuals who are adult daughters caring for a parent reporting higher levels of distress than other kinds of relationships. We know from additional research studies and um, interventions that have been developed designed uh, for spousal cancer caregivers. Um, sorry, we know that, that many studies and um, interventions that have been developed um, are, are designed, there's, there's more studies that have been designed for spousal caregivers than non-spousal caregivers. And in one um, follow-up study of cancer caregivers, um, non-spousal caregivers reported better mental functioning and better mental health than spousal caregivers. Other research suggests differences by gender in spousal caregiving, which is, of course, um, relevant for um, men with prostate cancer, and that women who care for their spouses report more distress than men who care for their spouses. However, the range of needs among patients and caregivers across the lifespan is wide, suggesting the need for the availability of diverse resources and services. Fortunately, more resources are being developed, and a recent review found that group therapy for men with prostate cancer can promote better adjustment and higher quality of life um, in these men, and that training to promote coping skills has been shown to be effective for their spouses and uh, partners. In addition, um, there are many uh, what we call peer mentoring programs that are being developed um, to provide patients with a peer that has a similar cancer diagnosis and age, and these are also expanding to provide peers for caregivers as, as well. And these, um, in the early studies are showing that these to be effective at helping reduce distress. Um, one of the topics that Carolyn asked me to talk about is deciding to become a caregiver, and I was pleased to see that this topic was included um, on today's teleconference because I think this is an aspect of caregiving that is often overlooked. And in that same 2015 report I mentioned earlier, um, actually more than half of caregivers of, of cancer patients surveyed stated that they had no choice in taking on their caregiving responsibility. In previous research, individuals who, were, who had higher levels of educational attainment and those who were caregiving for a parent were more likely to report um, not uh, caregiving, um, not having a choice in becoming a caregiver. And at the same time, having, um, reporting not having a choice is related to higher levels of caregiver stress and strain. And what that can mean for someone considering to become a caregiver is that choice matters and that taking on this kind of role needs to be viewed through a lens of adjustment. Um, many resources recommend to take, for caregivers to take some time to process what's happening and what this can mean for, um, for your life and schedule. Um, setting and revisiting goals and communicating with um, your loved one is crucial. And caregiving does not have to be nor should be a singular endeavor. There are ways to marshal support from additional family members and friends, and there are tools to help organize requests, tasks, schedules, and expectations. 
So now more than ever, and especially in the setting of feeling, obli uh, feeling obligation, is the time to activate um, what we often call, refer to as uh, your village. And it's also important, and I think we'll talk about this more, to communicate with um, health, the healthcare team, um, those who are um, helping provide uh, formal care, the doctors and nurses and other staff that are helping um, care for your loved one with prostate cancer to navigate this transition to becoming a caregiver. And I'll say a little bit more about communicating with the healthcare team now. Um, appointment scheduling, understanding medication regimens and treatment plans, managing symptoms and side effects that can happen with, um, with cancer treatment can be difficult in the best of circumstances and even more so when someone isn't feeling well. In cancer patients with a dedicated caregiver, someone willing and able to come to medical appointments and be able to assist just even with listening and taking notes during appointments can be enormously helpful. Caregivers can ask the healthcare team about recording conversations with, say, an audio recorder or even a phone. Um, often healthcare teams will permit this to assist with just re remembering what's covered in the appointment. Um, and, I, and I just want to stress this because many cancer caregivers um, report not having had these conversations with um, the healthcare team. In the study I mentioned earlier, just over half uh, reported having discussed their loved one's care needs with a provider, and only less than a third discussed their own self-care needs. Um, in addition, about 40% reported performing um, medical nursing tasks without prior training or preparation. And although these findings might seem negative, I, I'm talking about them here to help normalize any feelings that as caregivers you might have about the stress of caregiving. It's not necessarily stressful or positive, it can be both. Sometimes at the same time, sometimes at different times. And there can be many positive aspects or what we often refer to as benefit finding from being a caregiver. A study from the University of Miami at Coral Gables identified domains of benefit finding among cancer caregivers that might resonate. And these include um, acceptance or helping to take things as they come, empathy, um, awareness or concern for other human beings, appreciation or more awareness of the love and support from other people, family or just the closeness that comes from bringing family together, a positive self-view, um, helping to become a stronger person and, and cope more effectively, and reprioritization, so helping to identify true friends and a deeper sense of purpose. All of these positive aspects can come out of caregiving for a loved one with prostate cancer. So it's normal to feel like it's hard and it's important to reach out for help. Social support is critical and support can be thought about in a multidimensional way. So you can get different kinds of social support from different sources. Um, along the lines of, for example, instrumental support or things like helping prepare meals, provide transportation and medical appointments, helping with childcare, and emotional support or providing a listening ear, companionship and affection. Both kinds of social support are important and can benefit both patients and caregivers. And in fact, in situations where there's a network of care carers or caregivers, where the patient is at the center, and then the primary caregiver next, and then secondary carers to follow can be the most optimal um, configuration. There are some online tools to help caregivers organize their care. Some of them you might have heard of. Um, there are sites like Caring Bridge, Lots of Helping Hands, Sign Up Genius, um, and those are sites that are designed to provide a list of, a person can create a list of tasks and schedules and requests for help, um, email it out to their friends and family or their social network, and then people can sign up for things like meal delivery, picking up kids from activities, yard work, taking someone to and from an appointment, um, and so on. These sites can help organize so that the help is clearly communicated and responded to, allowing the help to be more efficiently spread out. And in our increasingly busy world, this kind of instrumental support can actually be a huge stress reliever. Um, respite care programs, which allow caregivers by providing uh, paid caregiving services, either during hours of the day or for days at a time, can also help caregivers in some circumstances, um, certainly not all, but um, provide relief to caregivers. Um, but these services are often underused. Um, and I just want to say one more thing about this, just that... Uh, Caregivers are often people who take on many tasks, but it's important to preserve energy. And this speaks for both self-care and self-advocacy. So in closing, I just want to stress that there is help for caregivers out there from many sources. Um, my own organization, the National Cancer Institute, has a guide on our website 
called Family Caregivers and Cancer. Other organizations, including Cancer Care, have resources, and I know Carolyn's going to mention some of these later. Um, so with that, I'll just say thank you so much for listening, and I'm happy to provide further resources, um, answer questions at the end of call. And with that, I'll just go ahead and turn it over to Ka Carolyn. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Kent. That was really excellent. And so lots of very comprehensive and lots of information for everybody to kind of really take away from this call. And also, if you have questions for Dr. Kent during the Q&A, start thinking about them now because it's really um, excellent resources. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Susan Sloven. Dr. Sloven is attending physician, genital urinary oncology service, Sydney Kimmel Center for Prostate and Urologic Diseases, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and she's professor of medicine, Department of Medicine, Wild College of Cornell University. And Dr. Sloven is going to address caring for your loved one with prostate cancer, the needs of men living with prostate cancer, and tips on working with your healthcare team to manage your loved one's pain, neuropathy, and discomfort. It's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Sloven. Thank you very much, Carolyn, and uh, welcome to everyone. Dr. Kent did an outstanding job of really laying the foundation about caregiving and the need for identifying the appropriate people or services that can be of benefit to the prostate cancer patient. I'm going to start out by just making one definitive statement, which is we are now seeing the graying of our cancer population. Now, what do I mean? It means that people are living longer, and we've been very fortunate in the world of prostate to see the evolution of really several new treatments over the last uh, probably five to eight years, all of which have really impacted on disease as well as quality of life. We've seen patients who were young and now are reaching their maturity, hence the term graying of our, our population. So people are living longer with cancer. They are responding to cancer. Uh, treatments. And the most important thing is that as things transition over time, they get older, we have problems from good old-fashioned Mother Nature that is often competing with the problems that may be presented by their cancers. So we often deal with degenerative arthritis, the aches and pains that we may awaken with early in the morning. But for a patient who has prostate cancer that's traveled to the bone, it may be very alarming that when they awaken in the morning, they're not sure if this is the good old-fashioned aches and pains of age or is this their disease. So this poses issues. We know that as patients live longer, we are also competing with uh, complications as a result of cardiovascular problems, heart attacks, strokes, uh, weight changes that may be uh, due to being on hormonal therapy, that extra weight could make people in certain instances more prone to diabetes. So we really have so many new problems that enter into our longevity, if you will, with cancer that we really need to start assembling really a group of experts or ancillary services, if you will, that can help address. So while, yes, we do need caregivers on the home front, the other caregivers are the people in the clinical environment, the people behind the scenes who are dealing with scheduling the appointments, the doctors who may be subspecialists in taking care of your pain or may help you with uh, age-related changes to your vision, either due to diabetes or just good old-fashioned cataracts. So we are seeing so many different aspects of life in general that it gets very complicated in terms of what to do and how to do it. A lot of my patients will often say that uh, they've now retired with the expectation in their golden years, if you will, to uh, go traveling and instead are going to doctor's appointments most of the time just for routine health maintenance and not as a result of their cancer. But there are needs that are very specific to men who live with prostate cancer. We talked about pain, but pain could be arthritis, pain could be cancer-related, and that could be associated with any kind of malignancy. But men with prostate cancer often have issues with their genitourinary system, so essentially, in a more basic term, plumbing, and they may have issues with leakage that evolves over many years. 
They may have occasional blood in the urine or blood in the rectum, and that requires immediate attention in many cases. In some cases, it's very simple, and it's just due to having had prior radiation that causes irritation in the rectal area or irritation in the bladder, for which just increasing the amount of liquid that they drink or avoiding certain foods such as nuts uh, could actually improve uh, their quality of life. It can be that simple. But what happens over time is that Everybody assumes that the medical oncologist is the same as their primary care doctor. They see me very often as the neurologist, neurosurgeon, ophthalmologist, cardiologist, sexual therapist, uh, podiatrist. I carry many roles, and I would say for a lot of them I'm pretty good, but I am not every doctor that needs to be involved in the care. Hence, we really need to have a multidisciplinary team. Now, who's in that multidisciplinary team? Well, there's always a captain, and that usually will be the medical oncologist, of course, depending on the issues. But it's usually referrals to these other caregivers, if you will, because doctors are caregivers that really make a difference. So in people who have a lot of pain, we always want to know, is it good old-fashioned arthritis or is it due to the cancer? If it's due to cancer, there are associated very often with doctors' practices, specialists who whose goal is to control pain. That's what they do. And we have anesthesia pain services. We have supportive care services, all of whom deal with pain. While medical oncologists are very adept at regulating pain sometimes, we need to use drugs that are much more sophisticated than what we would normally give in the outpatient setting. And as such, having specialists who really know how to tweak those cancer-related issues with regard to pain are really very, very important. Among those queries about pain, you know, people come in, well, how do I know if it's if it's due to my arthritis or it's my cancer? I often tell people that, it's unusual to have pain on both sides of the body at the same time. Usually a cancer-related pain is pain that tends to be unremitting. It just doesn't go away. It could be an ache. It could be uh, burning. It could be uh, numbness and tingling. And it's really the with the assistance of these pain specialists that we determine, is this from arthritis? Is this because somebody has a herniated disc that they're getting a burning sensation? There's a, There's a lot of trying to find the area that's causing the problem that will then lead to determining the appropriate treatment. So neuropathy, for example, can be not only a side effect of somebody having disease in their bones, but it could be a side effect uh, of using chemotherapy or very uh, specific drugs, among them a drug called docetaxel or cabazitaxel from a group of, of uh, drugs called taxanes. It's a chemotherapy drug and uh, for the most part well tolerated. But when we talk about neuropathy, we're talking about anything that ranges from numbness or tingling in fingers or in toes or in profound cases, inability to button one's shirt or feeling as if one is walking on a carpet even though walking is on concrete. So it's a sort of a muted sense of of feeling. Discomfort. Well, what do we mean by discomfort? Well, discomfort could be a headache. A discomfort can just be a sense of general, I guess, weakness or blah. And it's really up to the doctors who, unfortunately, sometimes can't give you an immediate response as to what's causing the issue. But we have to play more than 20 questions. How a person defines their problem can be very different than how their caretaker will describe it. And we often rely on the caretaker to give us their interpretations of what is troubling the patient. Now, for patients who bring their caregivers with them to the the office or the clinic, very often those caretakers have been fairly well educated in terms of now understanding the nuances of the complaints of that patient. But very often it's their interpretation, and if you talk to the patient, they may have a completely different presentation of how they would describe their their uh, associated uh, side effects. So sometimes we really spend a tremendous amount of time just trying to dissect out what do you mean by discomfort? What do you mean by neuropathy and the like? 
it's great that we have so many people that can be involved in dealing not only with the medical problems associated with aging, but also in dealing with pain and neuropathy and the general discomfort that can come as a result of disease or treatment-associated side effects. We work very closely with physiatry or physical rehabilitation medicine to deal with unsteadiness of gait that can happen as a result of numbness and tingling in the feet or a bad disc or somebody who's repetitively falling. We are now incorporating more and more family members or caregivers, friends, for example, who are dedicated to trying to help patients not only with their activities of daily living, but really help patients try to communicate better with the doctors so that the doctors and their associates can help them. So I would tell everybody who's involved as a caretaker, keep doing what you're doing, but always feel free to reach out to the doctors and the nurses and all the supporting doctors for anything that you need to help you get better insight into caring for your loved one. Thank you very much. Back to you, Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Slovin. That was wonderful and just very informative as well. And um, a lot of things for people to consider. And again, um, a good time now to think about questions you want to ask Dr. Slovin. So excellent. Thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Sharon Flynn. Ms. Flynn is an oncology nurse. She's a nurse educator, research and practice development, National Institutes of Health, Clinical Research Center. And Ms. Flynn is going to be addressing care coordination, challenges, and tips stresses of family, friends, and loved ones, including long-distance caregivers, coping with holidays, birthdays, and special occasions, managing family, friends, partners, and traditions, and practical tips for managing caregivers' stress, including key strategies for self-care. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Flynn. Great. Thank you, Dr. Messner, for the opportunity to be on the call today. And thank you to Drs. Kent and Sloven for their, for their absolutely outstanding presentations. And I would like to take the opportunity to welcome all of our participants for being on the call today. Whether you're a person with prostate cancer, a caregiver of someone with prostate cancer, a healthcare provider, you recognize the importance of the caregiving role and have made the time to dial in to this presentation, and we thank you. So I'm going to first talk to you about care coordination, challenges, and tips. So care coordination can be very challenging, and I have just a couple tips for you. Um, the first one is, as a caregiver, talk to your employer, or if you're in school, talk to your school professors about your caregiving responsibilities and how this might impact your work or school. And it, it's a perfect opportunity to um, let them know that you might need to adjust your schedule um, in order to fulfill your caregiving needs. The next one is um, maintain organization. Um, that's hard on a non-caregiving day. Um, but there, look, be on the lookout for tools that will best help you keep organized. Um, this will include potentially keeping track of a complicated medical um, medication regimen that includes uh, prescription refills, not just for medications um, for the prostate cancer, but maybe also medications to treat high blood pressure or diabetes, um, multiple medical appointments, sometimes with different providers, um, not only the oncologists that treat the cancer, but maybe a radiation um, oncologist or the primary care providers. Um, keeping track of all of those appointments and prescription refills and keeping track of when the car still needs the oil change or the lawn needs to be mowed. I encourage you to write down your questions. For some people, they like to keep a notebook. For other people, they like to type those questions in on their phone or their laptop. Um, and keep asking those questions until you um, fully understand um, or get a, a response that you understand um, from your question. I know sometimes um, when we have a new treatment regimen um, at the cancer center that I work at, I don't fully understand how all the different components are working. And so I'll ask one of our physicians, could you draw a picture of that for me on how these three different treatments are going to work to eliminate this cancer? 
And so um, I used to feel silly asking for them to draw a picture for me, um, but I've asked so many times now they they volunteer that picture um, or that drawing to say, okay, this is how this particular treatment works, and here's how the other ones um, help support that. Um, my next tip is you don't have to be the sole caregiver. Um, ask for help and enlist the help of others, whether those are long-distance caregivers or um, also paid assistance, such as home health aides or maybe a meal preparation service like Meals on Wheels. Um, they are available, and there are many, many resources that um, Cancer Care has available and other organizations to help you navigate to find someone that best meets the needs of um, the person that you're taking care of. And I'd like to spend the next couple moments talking about long-distance caregiving. It's something in my practice that we're seeing more and more of. Um, long-distance caregivers are caregivers who don't live um, in the same town um, as the person living with cancer. Um, we shouldn't ignore them. Um, we should embrace their help because they can provide significant emotional support um, for not only you, the caregiver, but also for the person living with prostate cancer. Um, as a long-distance caregiver, stay in touch with the local caregivers and the loved one with cancer. Be willing to talk about difficult topics, such as a living will or personal finances. Um, and don't underestimate the role that you are providing. Um, it is considerable and it is needed. You can help with coordinating medical appointments, as I just said, um, sometimes people with prostate cancer have many different medical appointments, not only with their oncologist, but also with their primary care providers. And maybe they have um, chemotherapy appointments or radiation therapy appointments. Um, just keeping track of all of those appointments can be a full-time job. And so this is a great way for a long-distance caregiver to keep track of those appointments and for sending reminders um, to the local caregiver and um, to the person living with cancer. Another way long-distance caregivers can help is by updating family members and friends. Um, at the end of the day, many caregivers are both physically and emotionally exhausted. And a long-distance caregiver can be a great point person um, for phone calls and to update emails. Um, as Dr. Kent said, maybe your family has a blog, a family blog on Caring Bridge or another site that requires frequent updating um, after medical appointments. Uh, this is an excellent opportunity to enlist long-distance caregivers. And don't forget about um, younger members, um, older teenagers, um, maybe some college, young adults, um, family members that can um, update that site frequently and give, have them have a sense that they are helping uh, with the person living with cancer. Sometimes it's helpful to have another set of ears on um, listening in on medical appointments. Um, the person living with cancer may be hesitant to bring up a topic during those um, examinations. And so as a long-distance caregiver, you could step in and ask those, those tough questions. Um, just as a point of etiquette, be sure to ask your physician or healthcare team member um, permission to join that conversation either by a cell phone or maybe if um, the caregiver doesn't have a cell phone, um, it may take the healthcare provider booking a room that has a phone um, in it. Some of our exam rooms may not have a accessible phone for that type of um, phone call. And so be sure to ask uh, permission. Other um, duties that the long distance caregiver could assist with include keeping track of paperwork and bills. Um, submitting those insurance claims is a, a great way to kind of keep track of um, uh, and manage the, the paperwork. Also coordinating transportation, um, calling the meal delivery service, keeping track of prescription refills, um, any home repairs that need to be done, and um, also coordinating some fun activities, maybe a massage or attending a faith service or visiting with family and friends. Having someone coordinate and keep track of those events can take the pressure off of the person living with cancer and their local caregiver. 
And next, I would like to talk about coping um, with holidays, birthdays, and special occasions. Um, special occasions like holidays and birthdays are very important traditions that we don't want to lose sight of while someone's going through cancer treatment. And they can become even more precious when someone is facing a serious illness. Um, but even in the best of times, these events can be stressful, um, let alone if you are juggling a new cancer diagnosis or maybe a relapse of cancer in addition to um, multiple medical appointments and treatment. And so I have a couple tips for you. Um, remember, there's no right way to celebrate. Um, this may be a time where you have to be creative and think of a way to modify a pre-existing celebration or holiday. Maybe um, you're used to going ice skating or playing football as part of a family tradition, and it may be hard to celebrate that family tradition that way. Um, so it's time to start a new tradition. Maybe um, instead of playing a family football game, you switch that to watching a movie at home or a board game. Focus on what's most important to your loved one. How can you incorporate um, family, friends, what's important to them, um, and support them during that holiday or celebration? And for caregivers, ask yourself um, when there are holidays and um, important celebrations, can you realistically do everything that you used to do maybe one year ago, maybe five years ago? In the past, did you not only host the event, um, which meant a lot of cleaning, but you also cooked all the meals? Think about if that's something that you can realistically tackle now. Um, and it's okay to say no. Can we have this at an alternate location? Or calling in someone to help you um, not only prepare some of the meals, but also help clean before and after that family event. And respect your loved one's decisions. Ask them, um, does this sound like it might be too many activities? And ask yourself that too. Is this too overwhelming? Maybe it's switching the family event to a restaurant um, where there's no cleanup for any family member. Next, um, communication um, is letting family and uh, family and friends know um, what you're dealing with. It's sometimes hard to reach out there and say, I really need help with X, Y, and Z. Um, but think about when you've helped out your other family members and friends. Um, when they told you what needed done, I'm, I'm sure you didn't hesitate to jump in and um, assist or ask others to help you, and a group of you assisted that person. Um, now's the time to ask for help. As Dr. Kent said, um, this includes many um, different ways electronically, such as a sign-up genius, um, other websites, uh, to help you kind of organize that help. And if you feel guilty receiving help, remember, um, I'm sure that you have provided assistance to many people um, before now, and this is a way that they can pay you back. And if you're still feeling guilty, think about um, how you can pay them back sometime in the future when um, perhaps your loved one is um, feeling better. Maybe it's writing them a, a quick thank you note. Ask your healthcare providers about specific medical concerns that might impact the ability to celebrate. Um, if there's an upcoming procedure, maybe putting that family celebration off for a couple days might um, be a better, a better way to celebrate than if someone um, had a procedure the day before and might not be at 100%. And Excuse me. And um, next, maybe consider um, scaling down the event. Maybe you are used to hosting um, summer barbecues and you had, you know, 50 people show up. Maybe scaling that back to um, maybe four or five people and um, maybe rotating to someone else's house. And um, just because we're out of the winter season here on the east coast of the United States doesn't mean that germs and the flu have gone away. So I um, try to gently remind people coming to a special event um, if they have a cough or a cold or the flu to, that, that you would love for them to attend but now isn't the right time. Um, 
you um, acknowledge their willingness to come to the event, but that maybe another time um, that they could celebrate with your loved one would be better. And as they're walking in the door, um, I always have my um, my bottle of hand sanitizer there um, to um, get big hands, adult hands, and also um, our smallest friends, children's hands, so that um, I know coming through the door, we at least have a first round um, to help knock out those those germs. And finally, um, be an inspiration. Um, Cancer fighter, survivor, and caregiver are tough jobs. Staying positive can make a big difference. Um, I've had um, recent patients write motivational sayings on index cards. They've shared pictures with me of their favorite locations that inspire them to um, stay positive, and also um, playlists of songs that um, bring a smile to their face. Um, it is a tough job, and we all need reminders that we can do this, and um, if we need to reach out, um, that doesn't mean that we failed at caregiving. It means that we need help, and we all need help um, sometime in our lives. And so I want to talk finally about some stress management tips. Um, looking into counseling services is one um, key thing that I stress to my patients and their caregivers. Um, everyone needs someone to talk to, and this is especially important when you're going through a stressful period in your life. Sometimes caregivers feel that they need to protect or shield their loved ones from stress and anxiety, worry, or a sense of doom. And talking with a professional counselor, such as, such as someone from the cancer care team, can help relieve some of the stresses of caregiving. Give yourself permission um, to take care of your individual needs, to get your questions answered, and to make sure that you're feeling emotionally fit um, so that you can continue on with caregiving or take a break um, and enlist um, someone else to help out. Um, there are support groups not only for cancer patients, but there are support groups also for caregivers. So don't hesitate um, to ask your health care providers at your local hospital um, what they have available. And then I know Dr. Messner will be talking about innovative ways that cancer care has free support programs and services. Um, and also for caregivers, set aside time for yourself. Um, sometimes I'm, uh, my uh, caregivers um, will say, well, I went to the grocery store and I waited in line and, um, you know, I, was, I had five minutes to myself. And I tell them, waiting in line somewhere for a prescription refill is not me time. Um, I really want to encourage you to go out with a friend you haven't seen for a while, um, to um, work on your hobby, to read a book, to give yourself permission to smile, to laugh, to have fun, um, because we want to take care of you too, the caregiver. And so that also means keeping up with your own doctor's appointments. It's easy to get lost in kind of the mix of taking care of someone with cancer, but it doesn't mean that um, you should ignore your own medical needs. Um, enlist the help of neighbors to maybe take your loved one to a medical appointment so that you can get go to your regular checkup and keep on track of your medications and your recommended cancer screenings, such as maybe um, mammograms or colonoscopies. For stress management, some people find keeping a journal um, helpful, and this doesn't always have to mean paper um, and pen. It can be an elect electronic journal. Um, it can be maybe taking photographs. It can be drawing or knitting or gardening, some way to um, give yourself permission to express your feelings. And again, I just want to stress, um, don't be afraid to ask um, for help. Sometimes in our American culture, we like to think that we can do everything for ourselves and that asking for help is a sign of weakness. And this, this simply isn't true. We need everyone's help, um, starting with the medical team and ending with perhaps the post office to help take care of the needs of everybody. Um, so if there's anything your medical team can do for you, please do not hesitate um, to ask. And for caregivers um, especially, I want to ask you, are you feeling depressed? Are you in a state of shock from the cancer diagnosis of your loved one? We know that this can affect the caregiving experience. 
if um, you or maybe uh, the person living with cancer, um, if they're depressed, they might be tempted to skip a dose of their medication or maybe skip a medical appointment, or they might even skip a whole treatment session, um, thinking that it doesn't matter because they're depressed and um, don't feel that they can express um, their feelings. And I'm here to tell you that you both matter. You are worth fighting for. Um, Support is here for you. All you have to do is just reach out and ask for it. And then in closing, I'd like to do a, a quick breathing exercise. So if you aren't already sitting down, I'll encourage you to sit down um, in a chair with your feet on the floor and then put your hands in a relaxed position on your lap. If this isn't comfortable for you, then maybe find a, a better position that is more comfortable. And I want you to close your eyes and I want you to think of a location somewhere in the world that makes you happy. This could be a beach. This could be standing next to a mountain. It could be sitting on a swing, or it could be at a park. Can you see the vivid colors where you are? What sounds do you hear? Are there birds chirping in the background? Maybe there's waves crashing on the beach. Maybe there's even an ice cream truck ringing its bell. Can you feel the sunlight on your skin? And now I want you to take a deep breath in using all the muscles of your chest and abdomen and hold it for a second or however long is comfortable for you and then exhale. And then we're going to do that again. So I want you to take a deep breath in with a smile on your face and hold it and then exhale. And as you're exhaling, all of the stress and worry are leaving and leaving you with just calm feelings. Okay, last time we're going to take a big inhale. I hope you're smiling. Hold that breath, still smiling, and exhale. And I want you to keep that smile on your face and gently open your eyes. You can do this simple breathing exercise anytime and anywhere. Um, And I want to encourage you to do that. So in closing... Um, Whether you're a caregiver or a person living with cancer, you are not alone. There are networks like Cancer Care to support both you and the patient through this difficult journey. Today's phone conference is just one of many resources available. Remember, you can do this and ask for help. So thank you for inviting me on this important call today. I wish you all the very best and look forward to your questions. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Lynn. That was really excellent. And it's just wonderful. And that beating exercise has relaxed everybody, I think, on the call. So thank you. Um, and we're going to have questions in just a minute. I just want to say a few words about cancer care um, in terms of a resource for all of you. And then, of course, so think about the questions you want to ask, and we'll be try to take as many of your questions as possible. Uh, cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization. That means that we provide free services um, throughout the country, United States, to anyone uh, living with cancer, so prostate cancer, of course, and caregivers. Um, we offer both practical and financial assistance to people. We also do have a staff of oncology social workers. They're all master's level trained oncology social workers, and they provide uh, counseling services, which really is a fancy word for someone that you can talk with and who really is there to listen to your concerns and to help you with what might be troubling you, to talk about perhaps things like how do I talk to my children or grandchildren about my cancer or how do I think about it myself or how do I talk to my friends or how do I deal with it at work. Um, So many, many different questions that people may have, um, of course, people approach us with. Um, And you can talk to our staff both on the telephone and um, also online. So um, we have um, both... um, you can contact us either way um, because it's a large country and people sometimes are more comfortable with phone versus um, online. And we also offer a number of support groups and support groups for uh, both caregivers and for 
people living with prostate cancer, other types of cancers. So some of our groups are cancer-specific. Some of them are specific for caregivers. Some of them are specific for caregivers of a particular type of cancer. So we really do run the gamut of every type of cancer and all children with prostate cancer. We do offer a number of different groups um, and um, we, the online groups are growing in numbers. We have about 138 online support groups, and again, many for caregivers, for young adults who are dealing with a family member with cancer, um, for young adults with cancer themselves, um, with, um, for men living with prostate cancer. Um, so we have lots of different types of groups for people, and many people find groups to be very helpful. And they're all facilitated by an oncology social worker. And um, we have programs like this and publications, and um, you can reach us. We'll be sending you all these resources when you get your evaluation at the end of the program, probably tomorrow. Actually, it will include all of the resources that we've mentioned with all the phone numbers that go with all the different organizations. And I should say that Cancer Care is but one of many nonprofit organizations that provides a host of services. And so that um, please be aware that there's lots of help out there for you. And now we have time for questions. I'm going to ask Crystal to explain to our participants how to queue up for questions, and we're going to try to take as many as possible. Thanks. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question comes from Stephanie Kay. Your line is open. Yes, thank you so much. I have never heard this type of seminar before. I really want to thank you, Caroline Messner. Um, I am a breast cancer survivor, but I'd like to know more about, uh, is there research, I have two questions. Number one, is there research being done right now for the cancer support groups for men going through prostate cancer? Uh, do they not express their feelings as much as women do during the breast cancer support groups or other women's support groups? Um, I think that men cannot always express that, and it's more difficult. And also, I don't know if this is too medical, but vitamins during radiation. Um, I know I was told not to take vitamin C. I don't know about D, but is it have to be stopped during radiation, especially like to know with uh, men going through prostate cancer. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I'm going to ask Dr. Slovin to address the vitamin question first um, because that's an area that she would have to be quite expert in in terms of what to do during radiation treatment. So, Dr. Slovin, if I could turn that question over. Yes. Stephanie, great questions. Uh, there are support groups for men with prostate cancer. The, probably the, the best-known one is called US2, T-O-O, and there are multiple US2 branches throughout the United States. It's, it's really uh, a tremendous resource. They not only have little breakout sessions for private issues that occur for these patients. So, for example, erectile dysfunction or psychosocial issues. I mean, there are guest speakers when they have these, I think they're monthly or every other week meetings. The reality is that that's how men vent their feelings with other men. You're absolutely right to point out that men just don't like to say very much about it. In fact, if you compare patients who have breast cancer with men who have uh, prostate cancer, you'll find that most clinical trials are enthusiastically embraced by the women with breast cancer as compared with men with prostate cancer. So women have led the way across the board. And we, we really try to provide resources for men, but you know, us too, man to man, uh, brother to brother, they're all, they go by a variety of different names and we try very hard to make people aware of it, but sometimes men just want to keep it very private. They sometimes are very fearful they're going to run into somebody that they know and that makes them very shy. But usually the preceptors at these meetings are prostate cancer survivors so they've been there, they've seen it, they've done it and certainly they understand it. So these resource, resources are there and I can assure you, American Cancer Society, Cancer Care, et cetera, all have the uh, wherewithal to put anybody in, who's interested in, in speaking to these prostate-only groups available to them. Your question regarding the use of vitamin C, so anything that's an antioxidant, 
is frowned upon during radiation. The best people, of course, to tell you this is are the radiation oncology people. I usually recommend calcium plus vitamin D daily for patients. That's not a contraindication, but any uh, any vitamin that can somehow be activated in the uh, bloodstream is frowned upon, and and sometimes uh, vitamin B complex is sort of looked upon sort of funny, but outside of the radiation, once that's completed, one can certainly return to these medications, and stopping them is not going to in any way affect the patient who undergoes radiation therapy. I hope that was helpful. Thank you. Thank you. And I just I want to comment on just the groups that we have at Cancer Care. We do have a number of groups for men with prostate cancer. We have groups both in our uh, New York City office, so face-to-face groups, and we also have groups um, online and on the telephone. And I have to say they are well participated um, so that indeed, um, and I think that, um, but their structure may be slightly different than um, what may occur in some of the groups um, for for women, um, but nevertheless, um, they, they are, and certainly up to is a wonderful model, as Dr. Slogan said, um, for that the peer support. So I think that, um, so I, I wouldn't want people to think on the phone that these groups are not um, helpful. Um, many men find them very helpful, actually, so I, I would I'd want to leave that open and, and so that if anyone's on the call and wants to explore joining a group, um, uh, absolutely are referring someone to a group, I would say go ahead and it's gross, um, and then we all work hard to engage people. So, yes, absolutely. So, Carolyn, I would just add that these are all free. There's, there's no, no monies or anything that has to be exchanged. Yes, and that's a very important. I mean, that's thank you for saying that. These are all free groups, so that makes a huge difference. Even just trying them out and seeing what they're like, and usually people are pre-screened. Someone talks to them about the groups. Um, so this question, so we have an online question. Um, just so HIPAA limits access to patient PHI. What authorization should a caregiver get in order to provide support for the patient? Does anyone um, actually, Sharon, can you address that at all? Or? Could, do you mind repeating the question? Yes, HIPAA limits access to patient PHI. What authorization should a caregiver get in order to provide support for the patient? I'm assuming they have to be a healthcare proxy, but um, sign some forms at the hospital. But Right, and I, yeah, I will have to I, defer I, this because uh, of just the unique uh, area that I work in um, for the federal government. Yeah, I, I can be I can be helpful, and I, I sure. essentially that having a healthcare proxy a little bit different than having the authorization. So the authorization is usually something that is written or put into the medical record that indicates that uh, a pay, the the doctor can speak with designated people. Now, if this is just relevant to somebody who's a caregiver, but is just somebody who's coming to the meeting, but really has no other role but then to but other than escorting the person, the patient uh, may not designate him and just say, "Look, he's just coming with me. He's a friend. He can come into the room, but he's not going to be calling on my behalf, or he will not be speaking to the doctor." So, very often we have family members who come in and they have you know five children we always and then they write down well you can only speak to you know child a as opposed to child b or c we want that designated because very often we'll have people sometimes uh, call who are friends or cousins or you know sisters when the reality is the healthcare proxy and the per- designated person with whom we're allowed to speak is just the wife so that's why you really want to make it very, very clear when you're seeing the doctor as to who the doctor may reach out to if the doctor needs to speak with somebody about the the clinical status or who the people are with whom the doctor could speak or if they call, they, they are allowed to speak with the doctor. That's always very, very helpful. And the PHI? But it, that's not a healthcare proxy, a proxy per okay. se. These are just designated people. So PHI limits access yes. to PHI, PHI. Well, that's it, because they would be getting it via the doctor, so the doctor's actually sharing public health information. Oh, public or patient health, health information. Yeah, okay. I mean, it's, so it's the, the doctor. Patient, yeah, public health information. Exactly. So you're getting it from the computer, which has the medical record. Hence, you are sharing medical information. The doctor, the patient himself or herself is not, 
No, power of attorney just means that if uh, somebody is unable to act on their own behalf, there is a designated individual, which is very different than this. This is just designating somebody that if they they can, they can talk to the doctor if necessary to understand what's going on or contribute toward the management or, or assistance of the patient. And that could be a relative, it could be a friend, it could be you know, an aunt, an uncle, or somebody. But that's different than somebody who's actually taking charge of the medical care of the patient, which is the health care proxy. Excellent. So this is a really important question. So the patient really identifies who it is that can that the healthcare correct. professional can speak to, and, and it's in the chart, so it's very clearly stated. That is correct. That's correct. Okay. Excellent question, and, and thank you, Dr. Slevin, for that um, addressing that. That's outstanding. So we, this is what we call a multidisciplinary team, what we have right here, and you can see how each person can contribute different things, and it's really important that, that uh, when you have a question that you have this team assembled in front of you. Um, so we have a question in front of our online participants, um, and... Uh, and this question is, um, I'm pressed for time, but I want to help my father who has prostate cancer stage 2. What can I do to help schedule between my family members? So, uh, Ms. Lynn, could you address this? Sure. Thank you for the question. Um, and um, for some of us, we, we are kind of in that sandwich generation where we're taking care of maybe our parents and we also have younger children. And so I would encourage you to maybe um, look online for certain tools um, that you can help um, enlist the help of other family members, maybe some friends locally. Um, sometimes there's um, different organizations that uh, the person with prostate cancer is involved with, maybe the Rotary Club, maybe a synagogue or church, um, and um, not only to help with maybe driving to medical appointments, but maybe bringing a meal over now and then. Um, and sometimes it's helping with home repairs, uh, trimming those shrubs back, um, maybe picking up a medication refill, um, things like that. Excellent. Thank you. And um, we'll take one last question. Um, so uh, for Dr. Slevin, are there clinical trials for men with metastatic prostate cancer available? My uncle is on external beam radiation for pain relief, but we'd like to try additional treatments. Great question. We always recommend clinical trials. However, this is something that you have to discuss with the physician who's in charge of your uncle's care because some patients have to meet specific what we call eligibility requirements. So it's not as if somebody just goes on a clinical trial. We have to look at the number of prior treatments. We have to see whether or not the patient's blood work is appropriate and whether or not the patient has had prior treatments that uh, such that this additional treatment would not be of benefit. So uh, I'm not I'm not trying to be uh, coy here. I'm just trying to say that it's important that any interest in a clinical trial should be discussed with the treating oncologist because very often the treating oncologist has a very different view of what might be very reasonable for the person. And when we talk about eligibility, what we're really talking about is that there are requirements that are set forth for all people who go into the trial. And so somebody, for example, who is unstable, uh, can't walk, or they're bedridden, or they spend 12 hours of the day in the chair, just may not be strong enough not only to withstand the treatment, but also may have a very hard time coming and going to get treated on the protocol, largely because there are very specific time points and you don't have the same liberal coming and going as you would with a, a routine doctor's appointment. But please, by all means, great question. Do speak with the medical oncologist or the radiation oncologist in charge of your, uh, your uncle's care. Excellent. Well, I have to say I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal. And I want to thank all of you who've asked questions. And I know there are many more questions in queue. Um, however, um, this is a one-hour program, and that we do want to um, then advise you how to get your questions answered. So the first place to get your questions answered, of course, is your treating healthcare team. We never want to sidestep your healthcare team. They know all about you. And even if you asked a question today, for those of you who did ask a question, or 
the questions that were asked kind of resonate for you, please take that information back to your treating healthcare team so that they can best advise you in terms of what would be best for you. However, I know many of you like to seek um, information, um, and so we'd like you to go to credible sites. Um, so um, I'm going to mention the National Cancer Institute. They have an 800 number, and they also have um, a website um, which has a live chat feature. And you'll be getting all that information from us um, when you get the evaluation form, so you don't have to write all this information down. You'll be getting all this information from us. Um, in addition, there are, there are four prostate cancer-specific organizations that are on today's call that partnered with us today. We've mentioned some of them today. Um, and they are terrific resources also. They have often pamphlets, information, um, and, and also they often have um, helplines that they can help you as well. And, of course, for those of you who would like to pursue counseling services or help from cancer care or practical and financial assistance, um, please contact Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. And most importantly, as we conclude this program today, we do not want any one of you to think that you are alone in coping with prostate cancer, any type of cancer, as a caregiver, as a person living with prostate cancer. We know that there are times, and there are often many times, that people feel alone, but we also want you to know that there are services out there. And this program comes from Cancer Care. Um, and in addition to Cancer Care, if we don't have what you need, we will send you to other places. There are so many resources out there, and it's, we spend our careers finding the right resources for people to help them um, to find their way. So please do take advantage of that. I think that's a theme throughout, um, that um, there is help out there for you, and you don't necessarily have to pay for it. So that's very important to know as well. So I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.